Okay, we're continuing to walk through the life of David. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 12, or the scripture will be on the screen, or you can use your Version Bible app. Uh, I would say that the, the passage today is one of the heaviest passages in all of the Bible to an extent. Uh, there's, you know, it's not like a competition or anything, but just reading through, there's a lot of heavy things that go down and a lot of things that are really hard to wrap our minds around as earthly humans who are finite, who don't see the big picture. I know a lot of us have been asking the questions the last couple of years of like things like, why is this happening? Like uh, the, the questions come up, if, if God is a good God, why is all this pain in the world? And, and I believe that 2 Samuel chapter 12, to an extent, speaks to, to some of this. So let's, let's recap to kind of catch up to where we are today. If you remember last week, we were talking about temptation. David was at the peak of his leadership. Things were going really well. His kingdom was expanding. His army was massive. Uh, he had anything that he could ever have wanted on this side of life. Palace, servants, food, glamour, everything. He had everything. Yet, interestingly enough, this is where David falls morally. He abandons God, and in one outing over a span of a little while, a couple of days, weeks, uh, David breaks four of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you break four of the Ten Commandments in one false swoop, that is a red flag if I say so myself. Even atheists would agree and look at the Ten Commandments and say, those are things that we should follow. It's like you read through those and everyone's like, yeah, don't murder. That's a good thing. People shouldn't do that. Don't lie. That's a good thing. People shouldn't do that. Don't have an affair. That's a good thing. People shouldn't do that. Don't commit adultery. Uh, And David commits four out out of the 10. And God is very displeased with him. And what's, what we're going to try to wrap our heads around today is the pain that comes from sin. And the challenge is, when we sin, we can attempt to run away and flee from our problems, but no matter what, it always comes and finds you. The pain will always get to you. Did Final Destination come out in the 90s? You know what I'm talking about? Have you guys seen that movie when people cheat death and death comes and finds them? Sin's kind of like that, you know? That movie's kind of weird. I don't recommend it. Um, but uh, it, it goes around and it finds us. And even if we try to sweep it under the rug, if we try to ignore it, again, we, we all have that sense of shame, that sense of guilt when we have wronged someone, if we have committed a sin. And this is the feelings I believe David was consumed with. He had committed murder. He had committed adultery. He had lied. Uh, he swept all of it under the rug. You think that was taking up some real estate in his brain. You see, that's what happens in our lives. When we sin, when we do wrong, and we feel this shame, we attempt to sweep it under the rug, thinking that it will make the situation better. It doesn't make the situation better. In fact, it just prolongs the pain that is coming towards you. Now, if there is uh, repentance, there is the mercy and the grace of God. Can I get an amen from the church? And the challenging piece to that is, even if there is repentance, there are still consequences, and at times, even punishments from God. So there are natural consequences. In my house, my oldest, you know, the oldest children, they're very, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So if my uh, middle or youngest child will be uh, one of the children in the plethora of children we have, will be disobeying, like we'll say, don't do that. Don't stand up on the chair like that. That's not a good idea. And they don't listen. And then they fall and they conk their heads, right? 
My daughter's like, mm, the, see, brother, that was a natural consequence that you just received. So sometimes we just have those consequences that are just a part of our dumb decisions, right? But also at times we have consequences given to us by God. And as painful as that is, God does it out of love for you and for me as a parent disciplines their child. Because what is God's ultimate goal? To bring his children closer in relationship with him. That is what God wants from you, to draw you closer to him. And when we go through pain in this life, again, we learn more from our failures than successes, but when we go through pain, the goal is that it draws us closer to God. If we acknowledge our sin and we repent as David does. And you'll see as we walk through chapter 12, the differences between King David and King Saul. Because when King David is confronted with his sin, he doesn't double down. He doesn't deny. He doesn't even try to get defensive. He understands what he has done. Again, I think he's been consumed by this guilt and this shame. He knows what he did was wrong. And what he deserved from the Levitical law, his own laws, was death. He knew that this is what he deserved. And this would follow him for the rest of his life. So here we go in chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to reflect on the the pain of sin. So I'm telling you, it's going to be heavy. It says this. So rewind the last verse in chapter 11. Bathsheba has her son, their son, Solomon. I'm sorry, not Solomon, the son before who David was going to lose. But the Lord, it says, was displeased with what David had done. So he's trying to sweep it under the rug. So fast forward about nine months. says, God was displeased. What's going to happen? Chapter 12, verse 1. says, so the Lord sent Nathan. David had a deep respect for Nathan. He was a prophet of God. The Lord sent Nathan to the, pro- the prophet to tell David this story. So this is one of the few parables that we have in the Old Testament, and it is powerful. Nathan goes up to David and says, David, I want to tell you a story. There were two rich men in a certain town. Sorry, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. So let's summarize this parable. You have a man with immense wealth. He had everything that he ever could have wanted. And again, if we look at the ancient world, they show wealth by the amount of livestock they have and food and all these things. So it says he has sheep and he probably has cattle and donkeys and and all this livestock and he has a plethora of them. He doesn't even know their names because he has so many. And then you have this poor man on this side. He's got one little sheep. Her name is Petunia. I put that in there. (laughs) There's little Petunia, the baby little sheep. He adopts this animal into his family. The kids know her. They call Petunia. They play fetch with this animal. They're cuddling with it. She sleeps at the end of their bed at nighttime. The the lamb eats at their table. She's all that they have. Thank you, Tony, for that. That was very authentic. That is a a little disturbing. So it's all that they had (laughs) was this poor little sheep. Fed it what food that they have. It was the best, it was their best friend. You know people like this, right? They have their dog. It's like a part of their family. So David, growing up being a shepherd, he would completely understand what's happening in this story. And in fact, 
He was getting furious. How could somebody do something like this? He has all these sheep, and when a guest comes and visits the rich guy, instead of taking from the plethora of livestock that he has, he goes to the poor man's house, takes this one little petunia away from the family, and slaughters it and gives it to his guest. How disrespectful can you be? How dishonoring can you be? You have no heart at that point. So David is consumed with anger. He is upset. It says David was furious. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, David vows, any man who should do such a thing deserves to die. And in fact, in the Levitical law, that is not true, but he's furious. David says in verse 6, he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one who stole and for having no pity. So that's what the law says. But what's interesting is who in the story actually deserves death? David. So he's upset about the story. How could somebody do something like this? David is saying, he's furious. He's yelling. As surely as the Lord lives, he must repay this poor man for what he has stole. And then Nathan turns to David and says, you are that man. Jeez. All of that shame and all of that guilt that David was consumed with comes to a head in this confrontation right here. David is upset. He's furious. And I think Nathan just looks at him in the eyes. David, you are that man. I think in this scenario is where your heart drops from here to here. Ooh, punch in the gut. You are that man. Nobody likes having conversations like this. No one likes having these confrontational conversations. No, how many of you like even being direct? Some of you have that gift. Oldest children, you have that gift and you know it. Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and I saved you from the power of Saul. Look what I've done for you, David, God says. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. He had everything he ever, ever could have wanted. And that's something that we should also take note of. What this earth can provide for you is never enough. It's never enough. There is no amount of wealth that you can have that will satisfy you. David had everything. It wasn't enough. You can have the American dream. You can have the full 401k. You can have all of this, and you will still not have enough. Notice with billionaires, they never say like, oh, I'm good. They're all, even if they say that, oh, I have enough, they're always pursuing something. They're always investing in something. It's always more because what this earth can provide for you is never enough. And God says, if that had been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why, David? Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? Man, he's just railing into David right now. And David, again, I don't see any fighting back right here. David is just accepting these words. He's, he's crumbling on the inside. He knows what he has done. And David, though he has many faults in his life, he was a man of repentance. If this was Saul, Saul would have doubled down and probably murdered this guy and said, get out of here, I don't care. David is accepting these words, even though that they're painful. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? You have murdered 
Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. All this stuff that David thought nobody knew about. Almost a year later, boom, confrontation. And here comes the consequences. Verse 10, from this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's Uriah's wife to be your own. Consequence number one, your family will live by the sword. Read in the forecoming chapters of 2 Samuel. David's family is a mess. It's a mess. There's rape in his family. There's wars. There's rebellion. All of these things come, come to true. This is what the Lord says. He continues, because of what you have done, he says, I even caused your own household to rebel against you, which his son Absalom does. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. How humiliating. And again, this is an honor-based culture. And so sometimes there are things that were even worse than death. And public humiliation and public dishonor was almost worse than death. And what happened in a handful of chapters, you will see Absalom, his son, when there's rebelling within David's kingdom, puts a tent on top of David's castle after David is fleeing for his life and then brings the concubines into the tent and dishonoring and shaming his father to the kingdom. And God says in verse 12, Nathan says to David, you did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. That's brutal, isn't it? This is tough to take in. This is a really hard and a, and a difficult conversation. And I firstly want to take note, again, David is by no means perfect. By no means. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus came to do the job that no human could do. David was a phenomenal leader, military powerhouse. God was with him. God chose him, but he wasn't enough. Only Jesus is enough for our lives. But David's posture, as he is just getting completely railed by this prophet, Nathan, is a posture of, of listening. In the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 19, James says this, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must be, you must all be, everybody say, quick to listen. Say it again, quick to listen. One more time, because we're terrible at this. Everybody say, quick to listen. Everybody say, slow to speak. Slow to get angry. That's tough. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And this is what I see in, in David's heart here. David is said to be a man after God's own heart. You see this, messes up tremendously, but he does have a heart of repentance. That even in this difficult confrontation of his sin, it will be met with repentance. And even though this conversation is difficult, the immense importance into David's spiritual growth as well. So, after just getting completely railed by the prophet Nathan, I think Nathan's upset. Again, he's just, David, you are that man. In verse 13, it says, Then David confessed to Nathan. Again, silence from David in all of this. Nathan saying this and this, you did this, you killed this person, and David's just getting hammered. And it says, David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's not defensiveness that we see. There's acceptance for what he has done. He's not saying, oh, these things are going to happen to me. I don't deserve this. He says, this is what I deserve. I have sinned 
against the Lord. And this, this is all he says right here. I think it's shock in his eyes. There's just silence. I think he puts his head down, and he finally is aware and acknowledges of the blindness that he had of himself. I've sinned against the Lord. And again, when there is repentance, there is forgiveness 100% of the time. Does that mean that our consequences are taken away? By no means. No. But it means that you're forgiven that when you pass from this life to the next, you'll be in the presence of God with no more pain and no more suffering. Time and time again in Scripture, it says this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. This is always true. Can I get an amen from the church? David writes in Psalms chapter 103, verses 3 through 4, he says, God, he, he forgives all of my sins and he heals all of my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. In the New Testament, in the book of James again, he says in chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. To build a community of people that have the, the trust built to be able to share our failings with one another, that is powerful. Honestly, that is where spiritual revival takes place. The church in this culture today is known for judgment. Again, for people outside the, the walls of the church, and by the walls of the church, I mean the people, that's God's job to judge. Can I get an amen from the church? That is not our job, but it does give instructions for how to treat people within the church. We hold each other to a very high standard. We challenge each other, but at the same time, when we fail, we're not saying, how dare you? How could you? All these things. There will be grave consequences for our decisions at, time, at times, yes, but there is always forgiveness the mercy and the grace of God. But again, there are grave consequences. Look at David's life. His family turmoil, public shame, loss of a child. His kingdom is going to crumble. That's a lot to wrap your head around. And what I love about David is he never disowns God. He never says, fine, I'll do this myself. I don't need you anymore. He uses the pain to draw him nearer and closer to God. So David responded and said, again, he says, I, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he says. And Nathan replied in a, in, in a spout of compassion. Nathan says, yes, David, you have. But the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. That's the piece of compassion that we see from Nathan. But then he gets right back into it. Again, David made some severe mistakes. He sinned against God. Murder, adultery. This is not stuff to be messed around with. Grave consequences. So David says, yes, David, the Lord has forgiven you and you will not die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. Family turmoil, kingdom crumbling, and now his child is going to die. Again, this is really hard to wrap our heads around, isn't it? Why would God says, send a, a sickness? So after Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. It's interesting. It also notes that this is not David's wife. This was Uriah's wife. God sent this sickness to this child. You say, why? The child didn't do anything. 
That's a baby. Like David is the one who deserved the consequences. So this is what I'm saying. It's, it's really challenging because at the end of the day, God knows and we don't. God exists outside of space and time. He sees the timeline to the beginning and the end. So sometimes God makes decisions and we're like, why would you do that? Why did this person die from cancer? Why did this person, this child die from sickness? Why? We don't know. We don't know. Faith is not built on explanations. It's built on promises, the promises that God gives to us. And taking a step back and looking, if you look at David's children, they are very rebellious against God. At times, they want nothing to do with God. His descendants have turmoil. Some follow God, some don't follow God. It goes back and forth and back and forth. And God is now taking this child with a quick illness and bringing him into the presence of God. I was listening to some theologian one day, and he said, you know, God doesn't murder. That's, that's only something we as humans can do. God simply transfers somebody from this life to the next one. And we have to have faith and trust in that, that it's for his glory and honor as painful as it is. And see, the, the other interesting piece is now David understands the consequences that he deserves. And by God sending this illness upon this child, this was a punishment, not because of the child, but for David. It says, after Nathan returned home, the Lord sent this deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. And in verse 16, it says, David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and he lay all night on the bare ground. So he's weeping and he's praying. He's not eating. God, please, God, please, God, please. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat and sleep with him, but they refused. And he's praying and he's praying and he's praying, yet his child still dies. How often do we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray, and then what we want to happen doesn't happen? And then we beg the question, why do we pray if it doesn't change the results? Prayer is not forgetting your own way. That's the first piece. It's not. And the reality is, God is not a genie. And if we pray and just expect him to change, basically give us our wishes, God, this is what I want. If we pray hard enough, if we weep and if we bear ourselves before God, if we read the Bible, we pray, we pray, we pray, then maybe things will change and he'll give me this person back or this person will be recovered from cancer or this insert here. The point of prayer is to draw you closer to God. Does that mean we can't ask God for things? No. But at the end of the day, as Jesus says, it is thy will be done, not mine. Because at the end of the day, again, God exists outside of space and time. And at the end of the day, I, am, I, I want to have more faith and trust in God's timeline than my own. And even as painful as it may be, the pain of losing a child, the pain of losing a loved one, the pain of not having your prayers answered. Again, what God wants from you is to be close in relationship with him. At times, we have natural consequences. Other times, God even sends us punishments as what happened with David. It says God sent this to him. God brings the child into his comfort, into his care. So now the child is in the presence of God. David loses his, his son. He's praying, he's praying. He's on his knees, he's praying. He's not eating. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with him, but he refused. Verse 18 then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were terrified, afraid to tell him. Why wouldn't 
He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. We understand what's happened now. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle, and he worshiped the Lord. When we think about worship, again, it's not just about joyful singing and praising. David does that a lot. But this authentic and true worship is David in grief before God. Does he ever disown God? Does he ever say, God, how dare you? God, how could you? Not once. He uses this to draw him closer to his father. After that, he returned to the palace and he was served food in his eight. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and I wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. Again, we can ask God for things, absolutely. But at the end of the day, as Jesus says, is let thy will be done, not mine. When Jesus is about to go through immense torture and, and, and being spat upon and the crown of thorns and being whipped and beaten, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, God, if it is in your will, please take this cup of suffering away, please. But I want your will to be done, not mine. That is one of the most challenging prayers that you can have in your life. God, I want your will to be done, not mine. This pandemic, God, take it away, please. Why is this happening? People are dying and the world is crumbling and a political mess and people are mad at each other and they're, they're fighting. Take it all away. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. God, why is this and this is happening here and then there's a situation over here? But I want your will to be done, not mine, even if that results in pain for me. And I want to use that pain to bring me closer in relationship with him. If you look at the life of Job, Job loses everything. He loses his children. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. He goes through this whole mess going back and forth. And at the end, God says, Job, you don't even know what you're talking about. And Job repents basically before God and says, It's now as if I've seen God with my own eyes. Before all of that, it's like I'd only heard about him, but now I have seen him. A lot of us are fearful of pain. I get that. I am too. We're fearful of what the world's going to throw at us. We're fearful of this. If we reflect on Scripture and, and what these people go through, what David goes through and what other people in the Bible go through, it always ends with pain for the vast majority of them, if not every single one, even the life of Jesus. But they use that pain to draw them closer to their heavenly Father. And then David gives us one of the most beautiful verses, I think, in the Old Testament. So David says, I fasted and I wept. I fasted and I wept and I prayed while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live, but why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? And he says these words, I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. That gives us hope for anyone who has lost a child. It gives us hope to anyone who has lost a loved one who is a follower of Jesus. When they leave this life, again, their transition from the earthly life to their spiritual life, to their heavenly life, they're in the presence of God. They cannot come back to us, but someday we will go 
to them. For those of you that have lost children through miscarriage or through horrible things, sickness, cancer, they can't come back to you, but someday you will go to them. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his now wife. He's taking care of her. He's doing the honorable thing. He slept with her. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son. David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. And Solomon goes on to take the kingdom over. He is the wisest man who's ever lived. He's written scripture. But again, he wasn't enough either. He fell. Uh, He started worshiping these false gods. The kingdom was torn in two because no human is ever enough, only Jesus. And again, there's a lot of hard things that happen in life. There's pandemics, and there's cancer, and there's sickness, and there's death, and there's worrying. There's all of these, all of these things. Once we pass through COVID and it's going to end, by the grace of God, there'll be something else, and then there'll be something else. There's never going to be a time where we create a perfect utopia where there is no crime, and there is no uh, death, and there is no sickness, and this doesn't exist. It never will. All that we'll find in this life is pain. But where does our joy come from, as the scripture says? Joy comes from the Lord and our relationship with him, that even in the the weeping, we can rejoice before him. And again, I, I read this quote and it said, there are no easy answers to settle our minds about this, but there are plenty of dependable promises to heal our hearts. Our faith is nurtured on promises Again, not explanations. And so at the end of the day, when we, when we go through all this, even the COVID pandemic, and we're like, why this? And things were going well before. And Well, let's pray that God's will be done, not ours. I came across this, this verse in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18, and uh, Samuel's talking with Eli. Eli is uh, about to have a lot of pain come into his life. His children are very rebellious. They're really evil. And there's going to be a lot of punishment coming. And the prophet Eli just responds like this in verse 18. So Samuel told Eli everything. He didn't hold anything back. All this punishment, all this was coming. And Eli replied, it is the Lord's will. Let him do what he thinks is best. If it is the Lord's will, let him do what God thinks is best. Because what I think is best will not get us very far. What he thinks is best. We give our pain and our suffering to him. We, we weep and we pray before him. We use our pain to draw us closer into relationship with him. That we have this deep spiritual transformation in our lives. That's what we desire at Liberty. Deep spiritual transformation. Again, following Jesus is not about behavioral modification, which is what it seems like it's been built on in our country. Oh, following Jesus, you have to do this and 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 this. No, it's about deep spiritual and emotional maturity and spiritual transformation in your life. We study the word passionately. We pray with each other passionately. We point each other to Jesus passionately. We confess our sins to one another. We have difficult conversations. We grow together and we pursue Jesus together and This is what a movement of Jesus, which is our vision, this is what it's all about. 
It's not about living perfectly. It's not about having this new realm of Christianity. It's what we're always been supposed to do, what Jesus has called us to do, to make disciples, to live life with one another, to help people experience the gospel, to live it out together, to not come to church wearing a mask. Well, you know know what I'm talking about. (laughs) A spiritual and emotional mask. (laughs) But to be our authentic selves, to be ourselves, to be honest, to grow in the painful times, and the joyous times. Look at David's life. He has a lot of painful moments, and this is one of the most painful moments in his life. He's going to have more pain, family rebelling, all of this. And then you read through his psalms, the songs that he wrote through all of this, drawing him nearer and closer to God. And I pray that's what we do together as a church. We draw nearer together, nearer, in our, nearer to our relationship with our Heavenly Father, even immense deep pain in our lives that we can grow together and be the movement that we have been called to be. Amen? So I'm going to pray, and our team's going to come, and we're going to continue to worship together, close with some incredible 90s uh, pieces. And I just want to encourage and challenge you guys. Again, uh, if you guys want to take the next step at Liberty, go to our website and fill out our, our partner course. It's under the Grow tab, libertychurchsam.com slash growth tracks. That's where you start taking the next steps. We're starting next Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We're going to talk about studying the Bible, how to do it, uh, um, how to do it well, uh, how to teach people about Jesus, how to grow, uh, and other things like that. So it's a great spot to get started. And I'm so grateful that you guys are here and being on this journey uh, with us together. We're in this together. Can I get amen? Uh, we're in this together. It's not just about me or elders or staff. This is, this is all of us. This church is yours. Uh, the reason that the budget has grown 100% in the last five years is not because I've given twice as much or three times as much. It's because you guys have. You've stepped up and you've given and, and more of you have been coming and, and getting on board with being a movement of Jesus and letting God pull you outside of your comfort zone. And that's our goal. So let's, let's pray and we're gonna have a time of communion. Uh, Tony, if you can go grab the communion supplies for me, sir. And if you need some communion elements, just why don't you raise your hand for me and Tony will bring the basket around. There's the, the bread that signifies the body of Jesus and the juice that represents the blood of Jesus. And we're just gonna come before the cross today I say, Jesus, within the pain, I want to give my life to you. I want to draw nearer to you, even if I don't understand what's happening. I want to give it over to you, and I want to draw nearer to you within the pain that, as Job says, I can see with my own, with my own eyes. Let's pray, and our artists are going to come. We're going to continue to worship. God in heaven, I thank you for bringing us here today. I thank you for all of my church family and friends, and I just pray you do a mighty work through our church. We can grow in emotional maturity and spiritual maturity and uh, we can be kind and, and loving with one another and we can walk through painful moments of life together that you just do a, a transformational work in our lives, that you continue to send new people to our church to be a part of this community that you've called us to be, that we can continue to go out to the Grand Theater. I pray for over 200 people worshiping for your glory and honor. I pray for unchurched people coming. I pray for our Riverfront Park outreach services this, uh, this summer that we can build relationships with people and share the love of Jesus through humility and honor and respect and that there's deep spiritual transformation in the city and beyond and, and the Willamette Valley and beyond. This movement of Jesus that we speak on. Our vision as a church It starts with us, deep spiritual transformation within us, walking step in step with Jesus, walking step in step with one another, being who we were made to be. We thank you, we love you, we want to honor you and glorify you 
in this time of worship together. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. So our worship team is going to sing, and I want you guys to take communion as you feel led.